Well, good morning. It's great to be here with, with all of you on this beautiful day. I have uh, longed to be here for, for some time. I feel like we have a lot of connections in many ways with the community here at Altona. We had actually booked a ticket to come last April, Zach and I. Is Zach here? I don't see Zach. Uh, he was supposed to be here. But uh, Zach Johnson and I had booked a ticket to come here last April, but in the midst of the depths of COVID, we had to, to cancel that uh, with uh, Linda and Marcus and now Paulette and others. I feel like we have lots of back and forth and connections, so I hope this is the first trip of many. Uh, I also have a special place in my heart for Minnesota. I was actually born and raised in California. I was born and raised in Southern California in Los Angeles. But um, as when I was on the phone uh, with my parents before I was coming out, they were asking me what we're doing this weekend. And I said, oh, we're, we're going to, to Minnesota. And my dad said, don't forget you were conceived in Minnesota. Um, so <laughs> he, he actually said... He told me, he said, make sure you drive to 910 Elliott Avenue. It's a little embarrassing conversation. But he said, drive to 910, 910 Elliott Avenue, and that's the place where you were conceived. So, uh, so I think it's interesting. Uh, we all, of course, we're, we're pro-life here. We believe that life begins at, at conception, not at birth. So I can say I'm from Minnesota, right? Uh, so from, from Minneapolis there. Uh, so maybe, maybe later on when Matt and Jerome and others drive us around, we can stop by. So I, I collaborated with uh, Brother Richard on the, the topic for this morning, and we, we decided that I would speak on the topic of mobilization. And uh, with that in mind, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at, at one passage together. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 12 down to the end. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to the end. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there... He saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless your word this morning. Father, there are, as we, as we just heard, there are places that your word needs to go deep into our heart. Father, I know that there are places in, in my heart, in the hearts of, of many people in this room that need to be, to be tilled and penetrated by the seed of your word. May we break up the fallow ground of our hearts and listen carefully to what your Holy Spirit speaks through your word, through me, an unworthy vessel. Father, I pray that we would indeed be excited for the great cause of being mobilized for the kingdom of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so anytime you read a passage in the Bible, you should look at the context of that passage. And we won't read, but right above this passage that we just looked at was the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert. Of course, the devil tempts him three times, and he prevails in those desert temptations. And what the devil does next is he moves from temptation to open war. It says in the beginning, in verse 12, that John had been put in prison. So this is the classic way that the devil operates. First, he tries to tempt people, and he has many devices that he use, uses in that temptation. Materialism, comfort, fashion, pride, media, all kinds of, of things that the, the devil uses to seduce to seduce uh, the, the people of God away from the kingdom. But if that doesn't work, then he will try open persecution. And that's what happens here. So John the Baptist, we know from other passages, had criticized Herod over divorce and remarriage. And Herod had just been put into prison over this issue. So Jesus hears about John now being put into prison. So what does Jesus do? It's very interesting. It says in verse 13 that he leaves Nazareth, this is his hometown where he grows up, and he moves to, where does he move to? Yeah, Capernaum, right. And it doesn't explicitly give the reason why he moves, but it is striking that he moves, if you look on a map, he moves six miles away from where Herod's capital was. So Herod's capital was in Tiberias, which is also on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus seemingly moves right into the heart of danger, moves very close to where the action is happening here. And he moves away from the very small hometown of Nazareth. So, you know, when you think of Israel, I, I, you tend to picture it as Galilee's on top, Judea's in the bottom, on the south, and in the middle is Samaria. And Nazareth is kind of sort of in the middle. It's a little bit above Samaria, but it's right in that middle area, but it's sort of an obscure area. But what what Jesus does here is he moves his base of operations away from Nazareth, this obscure city, to Capernaum, to Galilee. And he does this 
to the disciples as well. He tells the disciples in general to go to these big places, these big cities where there's a lot of action. And Matthew connects this move to a prophecy from Isaiah. So I hope you you read that carefully, what we just read there. He says, it says in verse uh, 14 that this this move was prompted by this prophecy from Isaiah, that this, this way beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, needs to see a great light. Now, the word Gentile, those of you who know Greek know this, but it's identical to what word? And I wish Bibles would translate it like this. Uh, what, is this what is the same word as Gentile? Heathen? It's close. What's that? Nation. Nation. There you go. So the word is ethnos in Greek. We actually get our word in, in um, English, ethnic. So like an ethnic group or an ethnic food comes from the Greek word ethnos in plural, ethne. And when it says Galilee of the Gentiles, it's the same word as Galilee of the nations. It's always the same word in, like I said, I wish they would translate it like that. Some translations do. But Jesus moves to Galilee of the nations. This is a much more international area. And he decides to set up his new ministry center there, away from the small hometown of Nazareth. I won't spend too much time talking about this, but it says that in verse 16, the people there in in Galilee who are sitting in darkness, living in the shadow of death, now get this burst of light. And what is this streaming ray that ends the darkness? What is this this, uh, proclamation that brings life? It's in verse 17. What is that proclamation in verse 17 that Jesus says? Yeah, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I could spend a whole hour just on that line. I'm not going to. Um, I have, it's the first chapter of my book, so if you want to read more about that, you can read it there. But Jesus here is building a new nation. He's building a new kingdom. And he's saying to everybody, Tear down your life, rebuild a new one, because this new nation is at hand. Okay, so now the next few verses are going to be how Jesus assembles this new nation. Okay, so he's made this proclamation, and now we get to watch Jesus actually mobilize and build this new nation. Okay, so Jesus is walking. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and they're fishing. They're throwing their nets. They're fishing. They're doing what fishermen do. And right in the middle of their job, they hear Jesus say the words, follow me, follow me. So they leave their nets right in the middle of their job. I don't know how many of you ever had any experiences like this where right in the middle of the day, right in the middle of your work hour, right in the middle of doing whatever it is that you do for your job, you feel compelled to follow Jesus. <clears throat> I was named after someone whose name is Charles Finney. He was a lawyer who lived in New England, and he was, uh, he was a relatively young lawyer. He was in his 30s, and uh, he, had a pow- he was not raised in a Christian environment, but he had a powerful conversion experience. And one afternoon, he gave his life to God, and... He went back to his law office, and they said, Mr. Finney, we have a case now for you. And he says, um, he says, I'm quitting my job. I can only plead the case of the Lord Jesus now. 
Um, just, I mean, just an overnight, not overnight, midday turnaround that he made there. And did you notice, did you notice in verses 20 and 22, the Bible uses the word immediately. You see that word? Immediately to describe the decisiveness of the disciples' response. This was a call so compelling that they left the implements of their vocation behind. One of the observations that Charles Finney made, which he was easily the most successful evangelist in the history of America, he used to say the most successful Christians are decisive. They don't waffle back and forth. They don't just hem and haw. You can say they're decisive. The ones who decisively act are Jesus' disciples. So I'm going to give you several points today, and I hope you take notes. In, in general, this is, you know, Brother Dean gave a, a nice, very nice message yesterday in his devotional. And one of the verses that he read there is from, from Jesus, where Jesus says, everyone who has, more will be given, and the one who doesn't have, it will be taken away. That's like one of the, the, the secrets to spiritual success. Uh, you... If you have things and you cherish it and you review it and you, God gives you more and more and more and more. If you don't, you lose it. I was very impressed. Uh, we had a tour yesterday. Very impressed at your organization. It's, it's remarkable. And after the wedding, Brother Dean gave us a tour of the kitchen. Everything's just so nicely organized and labeled. I said, wow. I, I hope that your, your spiritual organization surpasses your material organization that you can look at your notes. Every day when you read the Bible, you should be taking notes. Every day you should be journaling. Every day when you listen to a sermon, every time you listen, you should be capturing that. I, I sometimes use the analogy that if I give a gift to one of my children and I see them leave it out in the rain or step on it and they don't care, do you, how motivated am I to give them a gift again? Not very. But if I see them excited and using it and really taking care of it and I'm going I'm, I'm to be more motivated to give them another one, right? It's the same way with how God treats you with insights. So if you, know, if you get an insight, you all have had spiritual insights. You think like, wow, that's a great thought. Write it down, right? Cherish it, review it. And as Jesus says, if you do that, more will be given. And if you don't, it'll be taken away. Okay, so I'm going to give you several points here that I want us to, to carefully ponder as we think about what it is to be mobilized for the kingdom. So point number one is decisiveness is required to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. This is a major, major, major theme of the Gospels. We won't read these passages, but later on in Matthew, as well as in Luke, Jesus tells these stories and different people come to him and they say, I want to follow you, but actually I got to go back and I got to go bury my dad. Or I want to follow you, but I got to go back and say goodbye to some people. And what Jesus says, he says, sorry, you're not fit for my kingdom. And you read these, these, these lines and you think, wow, that's harsh. You can't, they can't even go back and say goodbye to their parents. They can't even go back and bury their dad. And Jesus says, no, you can't. It is the decisive who are the victorious. Satan waits. His specialty is waiting to pluck the seed from the hearts of the unsuspecting. So many people, so many people will say, oh, I just need more time. I need to do X. I need to do Y. I need to do Z. Guess what? The devil comes in and snatches the seed of the word. The heart closes. So Jesus' true disciples act decisively. 
So I want to ask you this morning, is there something that you are considering now? Is there some sin that you are pondering, forsaking? Do it immediately. Is there some command that you are thinking about obeying? Do it immediately. Is there some conversation you're thinking about having with someone, some admonition, some, something heavy? Do it immediately. Is there a spiritual discipline that you sense God wants to call you to? Do it immediately. Let this be the hallmark of your spiritual life. Decisiveness. Immediate action. Okay, so next what we see in this passage is, I think, just incredible. Jesus gives this command, but he gives a promise that's attached to this command. Of course, he says, follow me, and I will save you. Is that what he says? Oh, wait, he actually says, follow me, and I will sanctify you. What do you think? He, he could have easily said, and I think a lot of people think that what Jesus says in their mind, they're not actually listening to what he's saying. Their mind, they're thinking, Jesus is saying, follow me, and I'm going to take you to heaven. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, follow me, and you're going to be saved. Follow me, you're going to be sanctified. Those things are true, all true. But the call at the very, very beginning of discipleship is the call to make disciples. Very, very important to not miss this. Now, all of us, every single person in this room, every, every man, every woman, every child, we have a deep drive inside of us, whether you acknowledge it or not, to influence people. We all have that. We all have a God-given desire to impact the world in some way. It's a basic psychological need. One of the things that we learn from this is that Jesus' call to each of us always comes with a mission. It always comes with a mission. So my second point is that Jesus gives a mission to every person and church that he calls. So my first point was decisiveness is required to be a disciple of the Lord. My second point is that Jesus gives a mission to every person and church that he calls. So the, the call is, in fact, to become fishers of, of people, fishers of men. Mark Twain has a great line. The writer Mark Twain has a great line. He says, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Okay? Those are the two most important days of your life, the day you were born and the day you find out why. Now, if you call yourself a Christian, I can tell you exactly your why. Okay? So this may be the most important day of your life. Today is August 1st. August 1st, 2001. You can write this down. All right, so here's, here's your reason. Your call, straight from the lips of Jesus, not mine, is to make disciples of all nations. There it is. Okay? All right, so turn to the person next to you, ask them, why are you alive? And then answer back, to make disciples of all nations. Go ahead. Do it right now. Okay, so different locations, different ways, different gifts. I'm not saying it's all going to look the same, but there's one objective, and only one objective. 
It's repeated again and again and again, particularly in Matthew, but also in the other Gospels as well, is to make disciples of all nations. One author says it well. A great book begins with an idea, a great life with a determination. If you want to have a great life, have a determination to make disciples of all nations. Okay, point number three. Mourning and weeping fuel the disciples' sacrifice. Mourning and weeping fuel the disciples' sacrifice. Okay, so, so you may, again, you may not have caught this. And my, my dad, my, my, my parents were born and raised in India. And they always used to say, coming from an Eastern background, it's easier to understand the Bible uh, because it's closer in culture to the Bible. And a lot of people in the West just read over it and they miss it. But did you notice what James and John do when Jesus calls them? They leave, it says, their father in the boat. Did you catch that? Now, if you had read that in the first century context, people's jaws would have hit the floor because they would have said, what? You're leaving your dad? You are shaming your father by leaving him, your family, your blood, your flesh and blood for this rabbi, Jesus? This would have been incredibly scandalous. Would you have had the courage to do that? Again, this runs through Matthew in particular, this theme of following Jesus above family. You know, his, his family is outside the building, and, and uh, they're calling him, and he says, no, I'm not going to go. Who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? Who? Those that do the will of my Father in heaven. He reorients, he reconfigures the whole notion of family. So how do these people make these sacrifices? How do they do this? I, you know, I, I'm 46 now, and I've seen, I've seen a decent amount in my life. I, I'm convinced that every single person that I have ever read about or ever encountered who, who's done great things for God, they have at the core a sense of, of brokenness. They have a sense of mourning. They have a sense of just, just this heaviness about them where they see a world around them that's broken. In Pilgrim's Progress, you know, what, what is it that motivates Christian to leave his city in the beginning? It's because he knows it's the city of destruction, and he has this big weight on his back, right? You can picture him just hunched over. He can't, he can't shake this weight. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. Jesus was not the clown or the jokester. He was a person who was a man of sorrows. Later on in Matthew, we won't turn to this, you know this passage, but this explains what Jesus motivated him, what motivated Jesus. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So when Jesus scans the crowd, he's just... He's moved with compassion. The word compassion comes from uh, the word that we get our word spleen for. Your spleen is one of the organs you have in like, it's under your ribs on the left-hand side. You can't even feel it. Um, it's like the deep parts of who you are. And Jesus is like, just like hunched over with this like groaning, ugh, I can't believe this. I can't, I can't bear the pain. It says in, in Hebrews 5.7 that Jesus' prayer life, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus, off Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
to him who was able to save him from death. Or sorry, I forgot one line. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This was a man who people walked around, and they were just like, wow, this is a guy who's doubled over in compassion. He's moved to tears. The, the, the calculus that drove Jesus, he says this also in a famous passage. He says, what does it profit someone if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So Jesus would see any one person, and in his mind he would run this little math equation, and he would think, world over here, person over here, person wins. With, with even one person, he says, what is a prophet, just one individual, that, that that individual's soul is worth more than the whole world. If you come to my home, which I hope many of you do, and you look over our fireplace, we have a, a plaque there. It's a quote from Spurgeon. I love this quote. I'll read it to you. It says, If there existed only one man or woman who did not love the Savior, and if that person lived among the wilds of Siberia, and if it were necessary that all the millions of believers on the face of the earth should journey there, and every one of them plead with him to come to Jesus before he could be converted, it would well be worth all the zeal, labor, and expense. If we had to preach to thousands year after year and never rescued but one soul, that one soul would be full reward for all our labor. For a soul is of countless price. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Jesus was a man, again, the man of sorrows who was marked by this. Now, I, I'm, I want to be sensitive because I realize that this is a joyous weekend and we're supposed to be celebrating. It's a wedding. Weddings are, are times where we should be celebrating. These are, these are wonderful things. And so I'm not talking about wedding events here. But I am saying that our lives should be marked with, as Jesus would say, Woe to those who laugh, blessed are those who mourn. That's, that's heavy, isn't it? Isn't that something? I don't know, do you think about that verse much? I think about that. And I don't think he's saying it's, it's always wrong to laugh. It's not. But the, the, the baseline, the marker of what a Christian is, is someone who's just burdened with, with souls. They're burdened with the things of, of the world. I've been, um, I've been involved in a... a I'm a physician, but now I work more with, with companies, and I do a lot of development of new, new technologies and new medicines. And uh, actually, I'll ask you a question here. So I, I promise I'll stay decent, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something here. I have a T-shirt underneath, so. Uh, I was, I've been thinking about this analogy because I've been involved in this here. So you can see here on my arm, what is this? Anybody, anybody want to guess what this is? What is it? Somebody said it. Yeah, very good. So this is a, it's called a CGM. It's a continuous glucose monitor. And I'm involved in a company that we're making an artificial pancreas that actually, it's sitting right here in my pocket. And uh, this, uh, I'm, I'm, it's not FDA approved yet, so you can't get it. But uh, the, uh, it's, it's checking my blood glucose every five minutes 
It's been amazing. And so right now, it's 106. Um, every five minutes, it checks that. And then it gives either, it's not hooked in, obviously, but either insulin or glucagon, uh, which are the two hormones of your, of your body to regulate your blood glucose. And it's been really interesting to, to be wearing this. I've been wearing it since Tuesday of last week, so almost a week. And every meal that you especially have anything with like bread or sugar, I can watch this thing and I take it out and I put it on the table. It's really interesting. I put it on the table when I'm eating a meal here and I'm watching this thing go up and down. It's very like, whoa, I better watch what I'm eating here. And, um, and of course, what, what you want to do with, with your blood glucose is you want your baseline to be fairly low, around 100 or maybe even a little bit lower. If it goes high and if it runs high, you get problems. Like you can get heart attacks, you can get problems with your eyes, all kinds of kidney problems. Uh, and, and so you're allowed to have a spike or two. So yesterday I had the cake, by the way, that was amazing cake. Uh, I thought it was very delicious. And it did go up. <laughs> I did see my, my blood glucose up. So that's allowed every once in a while. But I want my baseline to be low. I want it to be low, right? And like I said, if it's high, you got problems. And you're, you're asking for, for a heart attack or some other diabetic complications. If your baseline as a Christian is fun and laughs and having a good time, there's something wrong. Okay, yeah, we can have a spike every once in a while, and it's fine. There's a, there's a time and a place for that. But our baseline should be one of just... Just mourning. Okay. Point number four. Following Jesus means following him into the world, having meals in the homes of sinners. Okay, so uh, everybody agrees. This is nothing controversial. Everybody agrees that one of Jesus' great hallmarks, what surprised so many people around him, was that he would constantly be going into the homes of Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all kinds of people that were not that were not in the approved class. And, and uh, later on in Matthew, Jesus will be called the friend of sinners, the friend of sinners. And I'm, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how people can say they follow Jesus without having that be their hallmark as well. You're, if, if you claim to follow Jesus, you better follow Jesus into lots of meals in the homes of non-Christians or them in your home. It's just, that's just, I mean, that's basic for what Jesus does, right? I mean, time and time and time again, this is what it is. Uh, this is what Jesus is about. I, I often, I often mourn the, the fact that we have not enough people who want to do this. I've been on doing a WhatsApp dialogue with a few people in, in Boston. There's someone right now who, uh, who actually is uh, from China who was baptized in our church, and he organized a, a, a program where we can receive people at the airport who have never been to America before who are about to become university students in Boston. And he sent out this message and saying, I have 35 people who want to be received into homes, who want to have meals, etc. And I looked at that, and I was, on the one hand, I was really excited, and then I thought, on the other hand, I don't think we're going to be able to put up 35 people to, to do this. And so far, we're not even close to that. And I had this sense of, like, oh, no, what in the world? Like, I mean, this is, you know, we've had several, several baptisms of, from people from China, three, actually, 
And most of that work happened just over meals, just having people over, just that day-to-day work of just showing love and fellowship there. This is what it is to follow Jesus. Very, very simple. And I know that all of you, many of you, are contemplating some kind of mission, and I don't know all the details of that. Whatever it looks like, I know that that the Hutterites are, are gifted with hospitality. We felt very welcomed here. But ensure that you build into your life something where you are following Jesus in this way. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus if this is not your hallmark. Um, I'm going to get really practical now and just get into some scheduling things because a lot of times people get overwhelmed at, at scheduling factors. I'm, I'm very busy myself. I'm a father of eight. I have, I have a, a big business I have to, to, to run. But a very simple formula, this is not the only way to do it, but it's a good way to start, is 3-3-1. So three nights with your family. You can just focus on your family. Uh, attend to them. Three nights of church-type work. At least one of those should be a prayer meeting. And then one night a week, just having somebody over or going to their home and doing just primary evangelism. When my wife and I set up our calendars, we try every week, okay, who are we going to invite over to our home and do evangelism that way? So that's if you're a family, 331. Three nights with the church, three nights with your family, one night of evangelism. If you are single, you have a special privilege. You have the ability to do things that that married folks do not. It's also 331, three nights of church, three nights of evangelism, and one night for a personal retreat just to be with God and relax and get your batteries recharged. So that's at least an idea for how to consider structuring your, your time. And I would invite you to survey your life over the last year. Would people say, if they looked at your calendar over the last year, that your life is personally built to fulfill the Great Commission? I'm not talking about giving money to somebody else or watching somebody else. No, I'm talking about you following Jesus by doing meals with sinners. If you cannot do that, if you cannot say that, you are almost certainly, in fact, I will say certainly, busier than God intended you to be, or distracted from the, the task that God gave you to give, that God gave you to do. Okay. All right, I'm just going to review here. Point number one was decisiveness is required to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Point two, Jesus gives a mission to every person in church that he calls. Three, mourning and weeping fuel the disciple's sacrifice. Point four, Following Jesus means following him into the world, being a friend of sinners, having meals in the, in the homes of sinners. Okay, next point. Disciples embrace the lifestyles of fishermen. Disciples embrace the lifestyles of fishermen. So it is such a genius metaphor. I, you know, Jesus is always so incredible with how he, how he comes up with these, these illustrations that are so, they just work so well. So I'm not a fisherman. I will say I am, I'm not at all qualified to speak about fishing. Uh, but I have gone fishing a handful of times in my life. And I know enough about fishing to know that there's a few qualities about fishing that fit perfectly with evangelism. All right, so the first one is perseverance. So I, I'm a little bit of a, of a person who likes to be on the go. Like I, just sitting around and like relaxing isn't terribly easy for me to do. I, get, I just get kind of restless. But when you go fishing, you sit there, and you sit there, and you sit there, and you sit there. 
and you wait and you wait. And like, I would say like at least 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, you're just sitting there. And all the action happens in like a really small amount of time when you feel the tug on your line. A lot of evangelism is like that, where you just, you got to persevere through it. And a lot of the activity is clustered in these little moments that could never have happened had you not been sitting there working for all that time beforehand. But then when it happens and you feel, it's a pretty amazing feeling, right? When you feel the tug on that, on that reel and you're pulling this thing at, whoa, I can't believe this. And, and you tell the stories and take the pictures of you holding the, right? It's, it's, a, it's a shining moment. That's a lot like evangelism. It's just a lot of unglamorous hard work day after day after day. If you're looking for fireworks, if you're looking for, oh, it's not going not gonna to be there. You have to be okay with disappointment. There are some days you go fishing, you catch nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's also a great illustration because, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when you, when you throw your, your uh, bait in the water, after an hour or so, you wonder, like, are there really even fish down there? Is, this, is there anything going on? I mean, you're kind of fishing by faith, right? Because you can't see these fish. They're down there somewhere, but you can't see them. And you got to just, you got to hope. You got to wait. You got you to gotta believe that there's fish in that body of water. I did some research for this sermon, and I was, I was reading about really skilled fishermen, which I said I'm not. And... Wow, it was just amazing. So really good fisher fishermen, they, they will say, okay, go to such and such a place at such and such a time of day, use this bait, and they'll even watch. I was amazed. I was reading an article about how they're saying, if you watch how the flies move on the surface of the water, that can give you a clue about where the fish are. They're like, wow, I have no idea how you would do that. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a skill. You have to learn to study the water, to study to study all of these attributes that make for successful fish. If you want to be a successful evangelist, you got to love people. you got to study people. you got to say, what makes people tick? What makes people change? How, how am I a good communicator? How am I a bad communicator? It's, it's hard work. Interestingly, fishermen say that almost all good fishing happens early in the morning. you got to get up, and I remember this. You get up at the crack of dawn to go to some hole in the middle of nowhere to find your fish and you got to get up early. I, I have been very impressed by this recently about how commonly repeated the idea is of meeting with God early in the morning. We just finished going through the book of Isaiah as a family and even in Isaiah, I wasn't even thinking it would be in Isaiah, it's there several times, this idea that the faithful are, are meeting with God morning by morning by morning. Jesus wakes up early in the morning. I mean, there's something about that. And again, there's, there's a time and a place for the late night festivities. But the staple of the Christian life, and if you, if you want to be even more convicted about this, you can read William Law on this, is, is a morning activity of being with God and being, being fed in your soul. One, one other property about, about fishing is that, especially fishing in the first century, you had to take risks, right? So you had to go out on these boats, and you had to weather storms, and people would die in these things. This is not, like the way we fish, the way at least I fish standing on the shore, isn't really the way they fished back then. I mean, they were out there risking their lives for the sake of, of uh, catching, catching fish. So isn't that, a, isn't that a great analogy? You've got to do all these things. I'm blown away by this. You've got to put all this together 
if you want to be successful. You got to be you got to be observant. You got to be diligent. You got to rise early. You got to take risks. You got to fish by faith. You got to be okay with disappointment. You have to persevere. Okay, just two more points to go. Point number six. Successful evangelism tests the authenticity of a Christian life. Successful evangelism tests the authenticity of a Christian life. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a confession here. It's kind of an embarrassing story. So when I was, I think I was eight years old, I was a Cub Scout. So I don't know if you know what Cub Scouts are, but they're like the, low, the level beneath Boy Scouts. So y'all know what Boy Scouts are, right? So like you go do these activities in nature, you learn to tie knots and all that. So I, I was a Cub Scout for a few years. And one of the projects that we had to do was to go fishing. So we, they, they took us fishing, and we had to prove ourselves as Cub Scouts by catching fish. And you get all these badges and points. And so we go to this particular lake. This is in Southern California. And, and I cast my line. I'm catching nothing. And... I'm looking over there, and there were some of my some of my fellow Cub Scouts, some boys over there, and I could see they were catching fish, and here I was catching nothing, and we had to catch I forget all the details now, but we had to catch you know at least one fish by a certain amount of time, and I'm looking here, and no fish are biting on my line, and meanwhile my friends are catching these fish, and so I did something I shouldn't have done. I decide to just walk the shore of this lake. And I'm walking the shore of this lake, and I find a dead fish that had, sw- had been just like swept up on the shore. And it was this really nasty fish that kind of stank, and it was a little bit swollen. And I, put, I took my hook on my fishing line, and I put it in the mouth of that fish, and I put it on my pole, and I started walking back to the boys, like, hey, see my fish here? Um, Obviously, completely deceptive. Don't do that. But I was a total fake fisherman. Total fake fisherman. Didn't know what I was doing. And I took some nasty, gross fish that I would never, you couldn't pay me enough to eat that fish, that I put on that line. How many of us are fake fishermen? How many of us are looking to claim a dead fish on the shore rather than to truly fish? Are we asking really hard questions about our effectiveness or lack of effectiveness? Because there's a promise in this. It's very clear. Jesus says, follow me, and maybe you will be a fisherman of men. Is that what he says? He says, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of people. So it's really, men is not the greatest translation there. It's anthropos, it should be people. So he's saying, you're going to be, if you follow me, you're going to be a fisher for people. Now, simple question here. Can you be a doctor and never having treated a patient? Could you be a farmer and never having grown any crops? You'd be a pretty pathetic doctor if you've never treated a patient. You'd be a pretty pathetic farmer if you went around and said, hey, I'm a farmer. I've never grown anything, but I'm a farmer. Could we be a fisherman, but never having caught a fish. Jesus says in this passage here, you follow him, he will make you a fisher. And you better believe that Jesus is successful at what he does. I find this to be a very sobering concept, this notion of using the scripture as a test for our discipleship. 
One of my life verses is 1 Thessalonians 2, 18 to 19, where Paul is, is speaking to the Thessalonians, and he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not indeed you before our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Okay, I want to go slow on this because this is an amazing verse. So he says, okay, one day Jesus is going to come again. And he says, what is my, what is our, he's writing with Timothy here, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Okay, so when you, we're, all, we're all going to stand before Jesus one day, right? What is your hope? What is your joy? What is your boast? And he says, it's you Thessalonians. Like you people, that you're my hope, my joy, my crown of boasting. It's not some prayer I made way back when. It's not, it's you people. Do you hear that? You all, if you want to hope, if you want to hope before standing before Jesus one day, I hope you can point to people that you would say, These are the, this is basically what Jesus said in Paul's words. Paul is saying, my hope, my joy, my crown of boasting is bound up with people because he knows, Jesus' promise, that if you follow him, you will be made a fisher of men. So if you get that and you don't have fish you can point to, you should have right now a stirring in you. You should have a sense of like, whoa, something's wrong here. I got to get, I got to examine my life. I got to look long and hard at what's going on. There's a, there's a, a man named Dawson Trotman who was the founder of a group called the Navigators. And I, I've used this analogy so much because it's just, it's brilliant. He he uh, is no longer alive, but he, he says that, that one of the analogies that Scripture gives for, for bearing children, uh, sorry, for, for evangelism, is like bearing children. So Paul in Galatians talks about travailing in childbirth, for example. And it's so interesting because if we were to, to just carry that analogy out, we would learn a lot. Okay, so yesterday we had a beautiful wedding here. Christian and Paulette, and I, I'm, I'm, we're all hoping that they're going to have children one day. I'm, I'm assuming they are as well. But let's just say, yeah, I heard an amen there from, from dad, future grandfather. Um, let's just say three, four, five, six years go by, no, no kids, no children. I'm guessing they would be thinking, hmm, something might be wrong here. Time to, time to visit the doctor. And they would do blood tests, and they would they would get scans, and they would get all kinds of investigations. Why can't we have children? I have a younger brother who for more than 10 years was not able to bear children. They both went to the doctor on both sides, and after uh, finally 10 years, they, they're now expecting their first in, um, uh, in, in December, and they're in their mid-40s, so it's been a long time coming there. So I've seen this firsthand. It, it became, now imagine this experiment. Imagine everybody moved in here to Altona, and as soon as you moved in here, nobody could have any children. Just total infertility. Nobody was able to bear any children. Let's say that happened for one, two, three, four, five years. I'm guessing Brother Richard would be checking that water supply that, that we looked at in the front shed there. I'm guessing you'd be figuring out, is there something in the air here? Is there some pesticides? What's going on? Why can't any of us have children, right? You, would, you wouldn't just be like, oh, that's normal. That's cool. We're fine. You would, be, you would be in a state of, of alert about that. It should be the same thing, but even more so with our spiritual lives. If we're not bearing children, if, we're not, if we can't point, if every, especially adult here, can't point to multiple people 
that you can't say, okay, look, these are my spiritual children, then it's time to, to go to the doctor and reassess. There are many different causes of infertility. It can be on the, on the man's side, on the woman's side. Uh, many, many diseases there. Some common, some rare. But you would do the work of diagnosing that. Evie Hill says that so many churches today have become about people being keepers of the aquarium rather than being fishers of people. I love that. Become keepers of the aquarium rather than being fishers for men. I have, I have seen here so many strengths. It's been, been amazing. I, I was, uh, yesterday when we were sitting in the reception, I was sitting in the front near the stage on this side, this side, this side over here. And I was looking back at the, at the beautiful faces and the crowd of people there. I had just gotten back a week prior from Africa and whenever I go to Africa, it is just heartbreaking because I was in Uganda and the needs are just, you can't even put it into words. They're so vast. It's just this ocean of needs. The area that we were in, Kampala, has two million street children, just children just wandering around. I mean, no, no place to go, really sad. And uh, incredible poverty there. People don't have jobs. Hopeless in, in every way. Lots of trafficking, lots of drugs, lots of prostitution. And I was sitting in that crowd and I was thinking, if I could get those skills that I saw here with hard work and business and things like that, if I could even get a fraction of you, I, I guarantee you we could get a whole harvest of people there who you'd be able to, on the last day, say, this is my, my hope, my joy, my crown of boasting. And so I ask you here, do the diagnosis on yourself, your family, your church. I don't know you well enough to say, so you can only, you, only you can answer it. I can't. There are many, many different causes for infertility. It can be lack of holiness. It can be uh, not being intentional, t- poor time management, not praying, no mourn, not mourning. Many, many reasons here. But I ask you and invite you to, to look carefully at that. All right, my, my final point here is that miracles follow those who step out to obey the Great Commission. Okay, so I love the conclusion of this chapter. Let's just look at it again really quick, and then I'll, I'll wrap up here with some thoughts. So it says in verse 23, after they follow Jesus, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So I, I love this because, well, one, there's this repetition of all. Did you see that? Healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease, all sick people in, as I mentioned, my training is in medicine. And I super specialized in one very little narrow condition. The disease that I was most skilled at treating was called thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Uh, say that fast. And uh, if you came to me and had Alzheimer's disease or 
I'm at multiple sclerosis. I wouldn't be much good to you. But here, Jesus is the omni-specialist. He can do everything. All kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease, all sick people. There's this torrent of power that proceeds from Jesus. The, what, what's, so I'm going to just give you a tiny bit more on Matthew, because you, you won't appreciate Matthew unless you know this. But Matthew, is more than any other writer of the New Testament, he portrays Jesus as like a new Moses figure. So uh, just, for example, in Matthew, Moses is, or sorry, Jesus is almost killed by Herod when he's a baby. And only Matthew records that. Of course, it's very similar to Moses, who was almost killed as a baby by Pharaoh. Uh, Moses goes into the desert for 40 years. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. Moses is called out of Egypt. Jesus is called out of Egypt. Uh, Moses goes up onto a mountain to give the Ten Commandments and the law. Jesus goes up on the mountain to give the the Sermon on the Mount. Lots of parallels there. But when Moses goes and begins his ministry, he works very powerful miracles. I think we know that. And the very first miracle, what was the very first miracle that Moses did? Anybody remember? To the people of, of Egypt? Well, that was in the end, part, part in the waters, but in Egypt. I think you said it. What was it? Yeah, the, the, the public miracle. His first public miracle was turning the, the Nile into, into blood. Jesus' first public miracle was turning water into wine. He, he's, he's this Moses in every way. Uh, Jesus doesn't kill the fish. He multiplies a few small fishes to be able to feed the thousands. He doesn't um, destroy the crops. He multiplies the bread. He doesn't inflict the diseases. Remember all the boils and all the terrible diseases there? Jesus is constantly healing at every turn. Uh, instead of killing the firstborn, Jesus raises the firstborn. There's several stories there, but the widow of Nain and others. But Jesus rescues people. Very, very exciting. The power of renewal, the power of healing, the power of miracles comes from Jesus, who now has this little band of people around him. So I'm going to tell you a little, another little story here. You know, I, I, I have been very, uh, very blessed to have been raised in a Christian home. And one of the things that I, I have so appreciated about my upbringing was getting to watch God work miracles as especially my family, especially my father. This is especially directed at those of you who are parents, um, but even singles as well, stepped out there. So if you want to taste the miraculous, if you want a life that is full of the, of the remarkable, step out and follow Jesus to make disciples of all nations. So I'll tell you the story here. So I mentioned my parents first came to Minneapolis. Uh, this was in 1973, both from India. And uh, they lived here for a while. My uh, my mom actually worked for Billy Graham, uh, who obviously is not, not alive anymore, but worked here. And my, my dad was, um, both of my parents are from southern India, which is a very tropical part of India. It's lots of jungles and elephants and monkeys and all that. And they came to Minneapolis. My dad was six, he is six feet tall, and he used to weigh 118 pounds. He was just a stick. Um, and... They, they came here. My mom came here with a grand total of $5. My dad had $3, didn't know a soul here. And um, 
came to Minneapolis, and my, of course, they didn't have money for a car, and so they had to walk everywhere. And walking through Minneapolis and St. Paul in the winter, being 118 pounds, six feet tall, my dad would say the wind would just rip through his body, and he just couldn't handle it, coming from a jungle to Minneapolis. And so they said, we're moving to California. <laughs> so they moved to California, so hence I was born in L.A. And my, my dad got a, a job working for a company called World Vision. They're a lot like CAM, so if you know CAM, Christian Aid Ministries, they're the equivalent of CAM for the Protestant world. So that was, uh, he worked there for many years. That was, that was also my first job. And he got, he got to the point, I remember this so well. It was, it was uh, 1983, 1985. I was 8, 9, 10 years old. And he got to the point where he, he was looking and he says, my life now is just, it's too easy. Uh, we, we had nothing, by the way. We, we were very, uh, very humble in backgrounds. Another story, I love to tell the story. Uh, in Minneapolis, they had their last $2, last $2 to their name. They decided to spend it at Dairy Queen. <laughs> Get their last meal at Dairy Queen and who knows what happens. So <laughs> they go to the Dairy Queen, they spend their last $2, not a cent to their name. Uh, walking back to the place that they were staying there. They were holding hands on the sidewalk. And then just at that point, somebody in the, in the night, didn't know my parents at all, reached out to shake my dad's hand. He um, extended his hand, and then the man just walked on, didn't say a word, and he looked down, there was a $20 bill in his hand. So this was, this was how I was raised. I and mean, we just had, like I said, hand to mouth, didn't know where our next meal was coming from, but we, we somehow God sustained us through that. Anyways, so we didn't have a lot. I mean, I still remember so many stories of, of never, never having the things that we wanted as a family. But uh, despite that, in 1983 to 85, my dad said, our lives are too easy. There's so many people out there who are dying, who don't know, who don't know the Lord. And he says, we have to move to India. We have to go back to India to, to uh, reach people in particularly Hindu and Muslim backgrounds. And so... So many people, I, I still remember this well, so many people told my dad, you're crazy, why are you doing this? You're just now beginning to make it in America. I was doing well in school, and everyone t- told my dad, like, you got to save money so your kids can go to college, all that. And um, he said, no, we're going to go, we're going to go. And so I spent a lot of my youth going back and forth between India and California. And didn't have money, but had this dream of making disciples of all nations in North India. So India is a very interesting country because they speak many different languages there. Uh, so it's not like America where there's, you can get around easily with English. There's so many different languages there, many different ethnic groups. And he decides to go to the north to an area called Uttar Pradesh, which is um, an area which is 0.2% professing Christian. Um, so 0.2 professing Christian. That's Roman Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Protestant, everything is in 0.2% of, of uh, the populace there. It's where the Ganges River is, if you've heard of the Ganges River. It's where Gautama Buddha received the Enlightenment. Uh, a lot of people don't know that Buddha was an Indian who eventually the idea spread outside. And so we'd go back and forth all the time between India and, and America. And... Uh, he had this dream of raising up native Indians to go and do discipleship and church planning in India. And 
he said, well, what, what better way to do this than start a training center in India to, to raise up people for this cause? And, uh, and so he said, I would like to get some kind, of, some kind of facility there. And the dream was to have five acres. And this particular part of India, to purchase five acres, would cost $50,000 uh, U.S. dollars. And we had zero, uh, but... He said, if I can get $50,000, then I'll buy this, this property and uh, some property. We didn't have anything in mind. And then he, he made a calculation that he could do some building of some buildings for about $200,000. Okay, so $50,000 for the land, $200,000 for a facility. Now, that, might, that may not sound like a lot to you, but that was an enormous, astronomical, like ridiculous amount to us at the time who were, you know, having nothing. And so what my dad would do is he would use, some, some of you are so young here, you know what these are, but the yellow pages, you know what the yellow pages are? All right, so, yeah, I see the older people nodding their heads. So the, old, the yellow pages are these big books where you would, uh, it's like a directory almost, and you could, like, open it up and call churches. And he would just call people and say, hey, I want to I go to India, and would you let me preach in your church and cast a vision about this? It was crazy. If we would go all around the country and we'd just call people and make relationships and network. And, um, and occasionally people would collect an offering and they would give this offering for this fund of one day raising money. So anyways, we were going through and uh, again, this was my youth experience. We would go from place to place to place, back and forth to India, place to place in America, hoping to get money. Eventually got $1,000, eventually 2000 3 4 after a couple of years, we got to $25,000. Um, it was hard work to raise those $25,000, hard work. And uh, I, I remember just sweating in the back of our car, which we didn't have air-conditioned track. We'd go to Texas, we'd go to Florida, we'd go to all these crazy places to get somebody to, to raise this money. So eventually we got to $25,000. And my mom, who was working for Bank of America at the time, said, well, if we raise $50,000 and spend it, it's just going to be a bare plot of land. There won't be anything there to, to look at, but just this kind of uninteresting plot. He says, maybe we can pray we get it for half price. Because if we get it for half price, then at least we can build something and have like a shack or you know, something on this property so that it's not just a, a bare plot of land. So they started praying. Let's pray we get this, this uh, church we were in. said, so let's pray that we get this land for half price. Eventually, we got all the way to $50,000. It took several years, but we got there. And the, reason, the, the way we got there was through a really interesting strategy. Somebody said in one of the churches, they said, Americans are very visual. If you can show people a picture of what this is going to look like, they're much more likely to donate money. And so there was a guy who said, well, hey, you know what? I'm an architect. He was Carl Mantle from Austria. He says, I'm an architect, and I can build little models, like scale models of things. And he says, um, I'll build you a model of what this is going to look like. And that way, when you go around to these churches, you can show, have a display of, of this, 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 uh, this, this Bible school. And so he said, sure. I'll never forget the first day I saw this model. It was four feet by four feet in dimensions. And you looked at this model, and it was something that came down to you in tiers, like in steps. And in the back right-hand corner of this property... There was a little mountain that Carl made 
with perpendicular steps on it. And it looks so weird because normally mountains are like smooth and rolling. But this one he made to have perpendicular steps on it. But whatever, he just made it up. He'd never been to India. He just decided to make up a plot of land that we could show around. And so we'd carry this little model around. It was four feet model, so pretty big. Uh, carry it around and got all the way to $50,000 and go to this place in India and uh, land by this point because of inflation and other reasons had gone way up. It was like $70,000, $80,000 to buy even a five-acre plot of land. And we're thinking like way over our budget, all these years of work, what a shame, can't, can't even afford this. My dad was about to come back to, um, to the U.S. And, and somebody came up to him and said, you know what, there's one plot of land that still might be up for sale. You should come check it out before you, you go back. And he said, sure, what do I have to lose? So they go there in a Jeep because uh, there was no road there at the time, no access. And as he's driving up to this property, his mouth just drops open because the property comes down to you in tears. And in the back right-hand corner of this property, there's a mountain with perpendicular steps on it. I mean, it was, it was like Carl and the power of the Holy Spirit just had this vision given to him where he made this property. And so they're just flipping out. They're like, what in the world? I've been there many times. My children have been there many times. Laura's been there. So they run up on top of this mountain, and they, they named it Mount Olivet. And so they... Uh, they pray, please let this property still be for sale. Please let us be able to get it. So they find the owner, and they ask him, is it still for sale? Yes, it is. How much is it? The Indian currency is called a rupee, so they convert from rupees into dollars. On the dot, $25,000. And so, so they say, wait a minute, what's the catch? How can it be just a mile or two down the road? It's triple the cost for a comparable size property. And he says, I'll be really honest with you. He says, I've been trying to farm on this property and grow mango trees. How many people here have seen mango trees? Okay, how, how tall is a typical mango tree, Joshua? The ones in the bank were 40 to 30 feet. Yeah, I would say 30 feet would be, would be pretty, pretty typical. Um, 20 to 30, maybe as high as 40 if it's a big one. They're good-sized trees, right? So this, this, I'm guessing this is 15 feet, maybe, maybe 20. I don't know, what is this roof? 12. It's only 12. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I, thought it was, I thought it was lifted up, but I guess I'm not. Um, so 12 feet here. So it's, yeah, taller than this. And so he's, he's been trying to grow these mango trees for years. And lo and behold, they were all stunted. They were all these little four-foot, three-foot trees that wouldn't bear any fruit. And and so he says, I've been trying all these different agricultural tricks, fertilizers and watering schemes and all this, and nothing works here. I want to get rid of these, this, this property. It's been a loser for me for all these years. And, of course, we didn't care about mango trees, so he said, sure, we'll buy the, buy the property. So buy it. I kid you not, within months, without doing anything, the mango trees shoot up. Um, I always love to eat mangoes off of this tree. It's just They're so sweet to me to know that God was <laughs> holding down the... <laughs> The, the, the growth of these mango trees for all these years. Uh, so they rock it up. You know, like I said, we didn't have any interest, did nothing to them, and um, purchased this property. Come back, and there's a letter in the mail from a woman named Janie New uh, who had met us from Adam, didn't know us from Adam, lived in Georgia, Alberton, Georgia, writes a letter saying, uh, I, I read about 
what you're trying to do. There was an article about this in World Vision magazine. She says, I'd like to write you a check for $200,000. Wow. And, um, and so she did. The place got taken up. And I was there, when was this? A few years ago. There's now a, a network. It's now the largest Christian school in North India. There's, their explicit mandate is going to areas where there's never been a church in the history of the world, Hindu and Muslim areas. There's now a network of about 1,000 churches that graduates have planted. They come together. I don't know why they asked me to speak at these events, because I'm not worthy to speak at these events, but they, they do. And huge, it's grown a lot since then. It's a much, it's, it's a now massive uh, institution. But you walk into this auditorium that's easily, I don't know, six or seven times larger than this, stuffed to the gills with people converted from Muslim and Hindu backgrounds. And, I, you know, I get up there, and I'm just, you know, weeping. And I think, wow, this from a, just a little family that had nothing but this, this tiny little dream, and God multiplied miracles beyond our imagination. Now, especially those of you who are, are, are fathers, who are leaders of, of homes or, or mothers, if you want to experience the supernatural in your lives, if you want to have your children raised with excitement that they serve the living God, not, not some dead, dusty God who, who, who merely is in the Bible, this is the way to do it. This is the power of what it is to, to serve God. There, there's a reason why the power of Jesus is manifest in this particular location. So I am, I am excited about the future I'm excited for those who especially want to embrace Jesus' call to follow him and to become fishers. Now, again, I've, I've tried to pose some challenging questions here. Hopefully, you, you sense my kinship with you and love, not out of a, a desire to, to throw stones or anything like that. But I want us to take a long, hard look at where we're at and to consider this paradigm here. I could have gone a lot longer. I actually had to trim my notes when I was preparing, but I've already gone an hour, so I'll stop. But I want to invite you to contemplate well. And I will be here this afternoon if anybody wants to discuss more or pray. I'd love to pray with anybody who would like to, to go deeper into these concepts. But the hour is, is at hand, and I will, I will conclude with that passage. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not indeed you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for being callous to the truths of your word. Forgive us for ignoring the, the calculus that a soul is worth more than all the world. It outweighs the whole world. Forgive us for being content with small things, trivial things, when there is a world dying. May we repent of complacency and smugness, and may we instead put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn for the lost time and move forward with a discipline, a decisiveness, a spirit that can, can change the world. Father, I pray for everyone here, uh, who is from Altona, from Elmendor, from Grand River. I pray that you would do a, a mighty move among them, among all the homes, all the, all the single people, all the leaders, that we would indeed be able to operate as one man for the sake of the gospel. 
Father, I know our vocation is clear, and I know that in a few blinks of the eye, we will stand before you, and may we have a rich harvest to show you. May we be able to point to many people and not come empty-handed. Father, I pray that we would look at our lives soberly, zealously, and and come before you, God, in, in humble repentance, asking that, Jesus, you would make us to be fishers of people. Father, I pray a special blessing on Brother Richard and the leadership team here. May you lead them and guide them as they have been charged with an awesome responsibility. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.